Today on The Grave Talks, another interview with Laura DiDio, the Amityville Horror Investigation. George and Kathy Lutz knew that the experience they endured that would later be known as the Amityville Horror was all too real. Their drive to be believed and understood led them to an array of paranormal experts, religious figures, and media personalities. On the night of March 6, 1976, reporter Laura DiDio would help to put together a massive team of these personalities to investigate and try to understand exactly what was happening at 112 Ocean Avenue. This would turn out to be a night none of them would ever forget. Members of the Channel 5 camera crew would get violently ill and have visions they couldn't explain. Sensitives would become overwhelmed and be forced to leave. And the spirit of what appears to be the ghost of a little boy was caught on camera. This night would later be dubbed the Amityville Horror Psychic Sleepover. The Lutzes started inviting people to go into the house that night. Mm -hmm. Uh, The folks at Channel 5 invited uh, some of the folks, another reporter from WNEW Radio, which was our affiliate radio station. Sure. The Warrens invited a couple of people. So all of a sudden, instead of it just being the Warrens and Channel 5, you know, we had a cast of about 20 people. Yeah. Which was not necessarily conducive to um, a great seance. <laughs> sure. It becomes almost a tour than it does a seance at that point. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember showing up that night at the house and it was lit up. All the floors were lit up and... um Alex Tanaus, who was um, part of, um, he was part of a um, a psychic uh, New York Institute for Psychic Research in mm-hmm. Manhattan. Uh, he was um, he looked like. Um, almost like a vampire. I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. And he appeared at the one of the side windows there. I almost jumped off the doorstep. Because <laughs> he had you know, a hawk-like nose, yeah. dark circles under his eyes. Uh, I was just so startled. And in that setting, yeah, it just adds to the, the mysteriousness. I had of... no idea that all of these <laughs> extra people were going to show up. Sure. You know, the other thing that happened was that there was a switch on uh, of reporters. By the way, at Channel 5, the irony about the Amityville coverage on Channel 5, the only ones who were excited about doing this were myself and Mark Monsky. Steve Bauman was not excited about doing this this story because he was a serious reporter Mm -hmm. doing a ghost story, quote unquote, you know could wreck his reputation. Um, oh, and by the way, what happened was he suddenly took off for a vacation in one, you know, in Bermuda in mid-afternoon. I didn't know this. 
Marvin Scott was pressed into service, much to his chagrin, because he and his wife had had tickets to go out for months to go to a Broadway show that they had, you know, was sold out for months with friends. Okay, so he wasn't happy. Um... Nobody, nobody wanted, nobody wanted this. So, you know, <laughs> turns to be one of the most so, infamous stories in the history of, of ghost stories. Nobody, and nobody it wanted it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When you're, as you know, when you're in the news business, you have no idea. Yep. If you're going from one thing to another after a while, it's especially in New York, it's just another murder. It's just another robbery. It's just another plane crash. Mm-hmm. That's the way you think about it. It's, it's very pedestrian. So Marvin, actually, when I happened to call the station that afternoon at two in the afternoon, two or three in the afternoon, uh, asking for Steve Bauman, they said he wasn't around. He had gone on vacation. I said, what do you mean? And at that point, Marvin had grabbed the phone and said, hey, I've just been assigned this story. Tell me everything about it. I know nothing about it. Uh, and he was he was pretty ticked off, you know, because his wife was ready to divorce him. <laughs> All the late nights, and now you're now you're you're basically cutting out on we've we've had these tickets that it took us months to get, and I've been wanting to go to this Broadway show for months. It's been sold out, and now you're you're canceling on us to go to a haunted house. So, yeah, <laughs> I know for a haunted house. Yeah, and at that point, it was not that big a story. Sure. Again, so um, when we you know we got there and you know, more and more people were, were showing up. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was, uh, it was quite, um, you know, it was quite, quite the, um, quite the thing. And then what happened, unfortunately, um, when we did the seance itself, after the seance in the with the, and we had all of these psychics there that Lorraine had invited we had one of the psychics ran out of the room um screaming saying it's in the it's in the second floor bedroom somebody else ran out and got sick on the front lawn i was sitting in between marvin scott and mike linder and all of a sudden, at one point, Marvin said to me, hey, I just felt a chill. And then five minutes later, Mike Linder said to me, hey, I just felt a chill. Now, in the ensuing years and decades since, when Marvin has talked about it, he says, yeah, at one point during the seance, I felt a little chill. I can tell you that night when Marvin felt the chill, he didn't say, yeah, I felt a little chill. He says, hey, I just felt a chill. Yeah. Um, and Marvin has always said he did not, uh, he's felt more afraid watching the movie when the Amityville Horror came out, uh, more afraid with all the kids throwing popcorn and smoking pot in the theater. <laughs> um, but the one, the one of the things that happened 
that night of, of March 6th when we got there uh, that really struck me, um, and everybody admitted this, was that our cameraman, Steve Petropoulos, he was about 40, he was slim, and in those days you had a three-man film crew, cameraman, sound guy, and the lighting guy. And the equipment was much bigger and heavier in those days. So the cameraman, those guys had to be in shape. Steve Petropoulos was based in, in New Jersey. And again, it wasn't a huge story. And he was, he was one of our, um, he wasn't one of our regular staff camera guys. He was one of our regular, like, fourth or fifth guys. So he was a regular stringer for us. So um, the camera guys, uh, the film crew arrived at about 10 o'clock, and they, um, Steve Petropoulos started to walk up the stairs to the second floor. That was where everybody um you know, started. There was one spot at the second floor landing where people felt things. But Steve walked up. Um, Steve and I were chatting at the foot of the stairs, and I was introducing him to the different psychics. Um, he so Steve says, "I'm going to take a look around," and he started to walk up the stairs. And he he got five steps up, and he said to myself and Alberta Riley, she was one of the other psychics that. Ed and Lorraine Warren had invited, he, he turns around and he says, there's a room on the second floor, the second door on the right, he says, and it's filled with mirrors. And he said to me, I don't know how I know that. Now, I had been in the house before, the week before. That was the, mas that was the master bedroom. That was the DeFeo's bed, you know, Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr.'s bedroom, where they had been shot, the, the wall behind their bed had those 12 by 12 mirrored tiles, mm -hmm. like in Las Vegas. Sure. So I'm like, okay. And again, that really hadn't been in any of the papers, so I don't know how he would know that. Yeah. So he then continued up the stairs, and before he reached... The landing, just when he gets almost to the top landing, he doubled over in pain. And his, his face, that you know, he was, it got red, and then the, the blood drained out of his, his face, and he stumbled down the stairs, and we, we, you know, he's clutching his chest, and he said that he's gasping, and he said his heart started to palpitate wildly as though he was having a heart attack. And he doesn't have any history of heart trouble. Yeah. And so, you know, we get him some water, and he sat there and calmed down, and it passed. And then no sooner does Steve Petropoulos, our cameraman, recover, than Mary Pascarella, who's another one of the psychics that who's the Warrens had invited, she's taken ill, and she feels nauseous and dizzy so they take her upstairs so she can lie down and rest 
So at that point, it's now about 1045, and we started to gather around the dining room table and to begin the seance. And we've, you know, we've basically got a cross and candles. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a couple of other people, I think, that the Lutzes, that George Lutz had invited. And that was, um, they were from Duke University or uh, that school of parapsychology. Um, and they were sort of skeptical. Mm-hmm. And for a little, uh, there was some contretemps going on between them and Ed Warren. And Ed basically said um, to them that um, those two that he really didn't want them present because they were challenging the house. And um, so there was that, you know, there was that going around. But uh, we had to hold up the seance for a little bit. This was kind of funny because uh, we had to get the, 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 the camera, the right camera angles and lighting. Mm -hmm. And according to Ed Warren, the candles and the crucifix are there to serve as irritants to antagonize the demonic force. So, um, again, Ed, in this instance, as Lorraine went into the trance, the light trance state acts as the guide. Mm-hmm. So, at first, Lorraine got nothing except a solid, dark mass. And she was speaking slowly. And what it looks like is she was she appeared, you know, normal, but it looks like she was straining as if she's trying to see a picture unfold on a TV screen. Mm-hmm. You know, and she said, you know, certain people give this the force in the house energy. And she said that George Lutz was one of them. Um, She also said that she saw an older clergyman in a black garb and who uses old rituals. And she said that man uh, would be the one who would be able to rid the house of the force, but it would take him three occasions to do so. And according to Lorraine, George Lutz was spiritually warned to leave the house before personal tragedy could strike he and the rest of his family. And she said that the force would need to be expelled before other people could live in the house in peace. So... um, Then shortly after that, Alberta Riley was speaking at the other end of the table, and that's when she started shouting, it's upstairs in the bedroom. And then she also was gasping for air and said she had heart palpitations. And then Mary Pascarella said that there was a subtle but pervasive element in the house which affected a tall, thin man who lived there in the late 1800s. 
And at that point, Ed Warren uh, felt that the psychics extended themselves enough and he halted the seance. And then we had somebody else bolt out of their seat and stumble out of the room and vomit, you know? Yeah. Um, So by midnight, after the seance had ended, people basically dispersed into different groups and exploring, you know, other regions of the house. And... Marvin said to me, we were upstairs and he, he tried to, we wanted, he says, I don't think we have it, you know, because people, he, Marvin knew, as I knew when, you know, for television, what you're looking for is something akin to poltergeist. Sure. And as I've always said, just because you've got a camera crew there doesn't mean that ghosts, spirits, demonic forces are going, you know, they're not card-carrying members of Astra. Mm-hmm. They're not going to show up and perform on command. You know, just because that we're there for two or three hours. Sure. Um, you know, Lorraine also thought, by the way, at the time, that the negative force that was at the Amityville house was able to operate through inanimate objects Mm -hmm. and she did point out the figure of the ceramic lion and pictures on the wall um so we did go upstairs into the second floor bedroom um and and the sewing room and marvin uh, did try and conduct another mini seance with Lorraine in the sewing room because Lorraine felt that the sewing room was the source of a lot of evil. Mm-hmm. But again, if nothing's going to happen, what it looks like for the television cameras is that you're sitting around talking in a dimly lit room. Sure. You know. This is the night where where the the ghost boy photo comes up, correct? At some point, yes. I mean, because, again, the Warrens had um, that fellow that they worked with, Paul Bartz, Mm -hmm. who was in a plaid shirt. And the ghost boy photo... There's, uh, you know, the boy in the fo- in the photo, whoever that was, was also in a plaid shirt. Because there's some argument, correct, that that it may have just been him on his knees or something, kind of looking over and looking up, and then the light catching his eye. And there's also the argument that it could be uh, one of the DeFeo children. And they, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about who or what it it it, it who or what it could have been. Mm-hmm. Now I. I have no idea. I can't vouch for it being um, true. I can't vouch for it being um, fake Mm -hmm. because I wasn't there when the picture was developed. Sure. I'm as mystified as anybody else. It didn't look like 
the any of the DeFeo kids to me. I mean, Mark or John, that would have to be who it was. It clearly was not Ronnie Jr. Sure. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, it looks like Paul Bartz. I didn't really think it looked like Paul Bartz either. Mm-hmm. You know, anything. Who knows? Um, you know, to me, it's it's a big question mark. And if it was a fake, who faked it? Yeah. So, that's you know who I don't know who developed uh, who developed the pictures. Yeah. Um, I I heard third, fourth, fifth hand that um, now nobody's contacted Paul Bartz. I don't know where he is. Um, but I heard third, fourth, or fifth hand a long time ago that somebody allegedly called Paul Paul Bartz and asked him if he developed it. And was it fake? And he said, you know, I'm not saying anything. So I don't know. But and nobody knows where Paul Bartz is. Sure. I've never spoken to him since then. This adds to the more more mystery around the around the whole well, case. A lot, as you know, the best time to um affirm the validity and do your fact checking and track something down is in the immediate aftermath yeah. of an incident whether you're you know mm-hmm. trying to find out about a traffic incident a robbery a murder or what have you mm-hmm. it's been you know 1976 is you know you're going back 43 years yeah Many of the principals have passed on, including, you know, George and Kathy Lutz. And, of course, you know, sadly, uh, Lorraine Warren passed away just um, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So the trail, the, trail gets, the trail gets cold. Sure. Um, in talking to, um, of course, Danny um, Lutz. Christopher and his brother, Christopher mm-hmm. Quarantino, um, they still to this day are very definitive in saying that these things happen to them. Yeah. And that's an interesting, almost a new chapter to the story that we've seen in, in recent years with the documentary My Amityville Horror and and Danny speaking about uh, his his truth and and what he believes happened to him uh, in that house and and Christopher also coming out now and speaking more uh, than he had uh, in the past uh, everything with allegations uh, many allegations against George uh, George obviously not around anymore to defend himself. Um, but there's, of course, allegations out there for our listeners who don't know of, of, of abuse. There's allegations of George being involved with occult practices or transcendental meditation and, and many other things as well. What was your knowledge of, of any of that stuff um, at the time when you were the reporter working on this case? I mean, I'm not I'm guessing you probably didn't know anything about the allegations of abuse. But as far as is George being involved in anything occult or anything of that nature? Well, I think what what George always um, said to me was that at the time was that, you know, he was sort of a non-practicing Methodist. Yeah. 
And when this uh, happened to him, Kathy was brought up as a, you know, as a devout Irish Catholic. George was sort of a non-practicing Methodist. And when this happened to him, he began to, he told me, he began to research everything he could, taking a crash course in the occult. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, he had a lot of books on, you know, everything from Padre Pio, Mm -hmm. uh, the very famous, uh, you know, priest who was, you know, a mystic. Sure. Who had, who famously had the, um, the stigmata, Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, Christ's wounds from the cross. Yeah. Uh, to the Fatima apparitions, to he had books there on you know ghostly apparitions and hauntings, etc. Uh, as as for uh, the uh, and and Danny had said that uh, you know and Christopher uh, had have both told me that. George would be practicing occult rituals out in the garage and things like this and telekinesis. And, you know, to that, I would say, you know, you and I could get bell, book, and candle. Sure. Anybody could try and practice that. That doesn't mean we're going to be successful. Sure. So, uh, I think that might be, you know, rather far-fetched. You know, I mean, I could try and do a spell and incantation, but this is not, you know, charmed. Yeah, (laughs) sure, (laughs) sure, sure. What what can you say? As for abuse, I mean, you have to put this into context. Danny was six when his parents got divorced. Christopher would have been four. And Missy would have been, what, two? Yeah. So a divorce, especially going back to the, to the mid-70s, that's, a divorce is traumatic in any event for kids. Sure. Danny was a very, very strong-willed little boy, and he was very, very close to his mother. And uh, Christopher was a much and is a much gentler personality. Mm-hmm. Danny wasn't going to like any stepfather that came in. So if you see those, Danny is a very intense person. What you see in those posters with those ice blue eyes is what you, is what you get. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure if you saw my Amityville horror, Danny, Danny lays it on the line. He does. Yeah. He you know, he makes no bones about the fact that he did not like George, and he was not going to back. He was not going to back down, and um, so George came in, and he was uh, the stepfather, and he, George, did say that the house worked on his personality. And he said that he became, he told me this, 
he became like a drill sergeant ordering the kids around. So in the context of today, that might be considered a form of abuse. Uh, do I think that he was beating the kids with belts and things like that? You know, uh, holding their feet to the fire? No. But, uh, and certainly he treated uh, the girl, Missy, mm-hmm. differently from the boys. So he, there's no doubt that he clashed with Danny big sure. time. Sure. And Danny reciprocated that. Uh, Christopher, you know, was was not going to clash as openly with him. But yeah, I mean, he was going to be a, dis- a disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. And Chris you know, and, and Chris in recent years speaking out more and more about what went on and in 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 what some words or less He's alluded to there being much more to the story um, than the public is even aware of um, or that that's been told yet. And obviously he was, you know, one of the few people that are still around that were in the house when when this these things were going on. But but that that uh, allusion to there's more that that no one knows about yet. And I'm not quoting directly, but but just roughly what what he said um, that he he wants to share when when the time is right. Essentially, uh, do you have any sense as to what he's referring to when when he makes uh, claims like that or, or or makes statements like that? Well, I I, I only know what what they've said publicly yeah. and what and what they've said to um, privately to you know myself and you know sure and the Warrens over the years. You know, I mean, certainly they they. They, they saw some horrifying things. I mean, Danny had said, and he said it in Miamiville Horror, mm-hmm. he and his mother were sitting in the kitchen and they felt, a, you know, they saw, you know, a figure come into the kitchen. He felt something go right through him almost. Yeah. He and he also said he and Christopher were in the upstairs third floor bedroom that belonged to Ronnie DeFeo Jr. Mm-hmm. They saw that sort of black figure, mm-hmm. you know, come into their room. That would that would be rather terrifying. Sure. You know, and of course, I guess they found some of, of the stash of Ronnie DeFeo's drugs or, oh, well. you know, paraphernalia yeah. in the closet there. Sure. And there was the, um, the incident of the beds levitating. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beyond that, I'm not sure. But all of those things were, you know, that would be enough to terrify me. <laughs> those are pretty big in themselves. I'm always I'm very know, fascinated. I mean, yeah, I, I, I've been trying to, you know, and I've I've heard I've heard allusions to the fact that those ceramic lions supposedly moved, a la, you know, Stephen King's The Shining. Yeah. Uh, so there, there have been any number of things mm-hmm. over over the years. 
But again, the only one who hasn't, who has steadfastly stayed out of the public eye and doesn't talk at all is Missy. And she was the one who had the story about, you know, Jody, the sure. uh, the pig. Now, Missy, of course, um, was only five years old. She had not yet reached the age of reason, which is generally considered to be seven. Mm-hmm. By the way, when we did Miamityville Horror, um, Eric Walters put that Eric Walter put that all together, and I was a producer on that, and mm-hmm. I interviewed Danny. Um, we had uh, Eric Walter got a top, you know, two top-notch psychologists to talk to Danny, and they came away, you know, convinced that, you know, Danny was not lying. Yeah. You know, um... The, the way the psychologist put it was that, you know, he believes all of this. Now, I don't think that Danny is, is delusional. No. And the other thing is, Danny, you know, Danny was nine when this happened. A lot of people say he was 10, but he was nine. And the reason I uh, take pains to point this out is that there's a big difference developmentally from nine to 10. Sure. It's not like being 30 or 31. So. That's a lot for him, you know, to to go through. Yeah. And certainly, I think his his wife, by the way, when Danny got married and had two kids, his wife didn't even know that he had he was the quote unquote kid from the Amityville Horror until she went to a video store one night to rent a video. And she was renting the, the Amityville Horror, and she saw his name on the back of it, and she said, is that you? <laughs> what a way to find out. <laughs> exactly. And I think in a lot of ways, when he did the – he literally, Danny, um, left home in his teens. And they were living in it after the Lutzes, uh, George and Kathy, got divorced. Danny left Arizona, and he came back to New York. So he – separated himself from that he basically locked that whole experience away and it wasn't until uh we did the he did the miamiville horror documentary mm-hmm. going back to 2011 you know when we were filming that that he unlocked the door to that and i think that let it all out again yeah that wraps up part one of the Amityville Horror Investigation, the Laura DiDio account. In part two of this portion of our conversation with Laura, we'll be discussing what have Danny Lutz and Christopher Quarantino said about being children who endured the Amityville Horror. When Laura returned to the house alone and unannounced, what occurred inside the home at 112 Ocean Avenue? What happened between the Warrens and the Lutz family after they moved to California? What completely bizarre death took place when Laura was compelled to contact Lorraine Warren many years later in 2006? And what is the real story with the Amityville house today? What strange interaction did Laura have with an owner as recently as 2010? What have realtors said 
about their experiences with the house in the years after the Amityville Horror. A new chapter and information never before heard lies in part two of our interview with Laura DiDio about the Amityville Horror investigation. To get it, become a gravekeeper that is a supporter of our program. That's what allows us to do the show and keep it on the air. Simply go to patreon.com slash the grave talks for $5 a month. You'll have access to this interview as well as every single interview we've ever done. Part one and part two, you get access to it all and access to episodes of this show months before they are released to the public. You can binge away all you'd like while keeping us on the air. It's only $5 a month. Patreon.com slash the grave talks or go to our website, thegravetalks.com, and click Become a Gravekeeper. My thanks to Laura for coming on the show and sharing her accounts, her notes, and her experiences with us about a case that has intrigued me since childhood. This has been one of the biggest interview treats of my life. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Laura. Until next time, for The Grave Talks, I'm Tony Bruschi. Thanks for listening.